Well, if you have uh, been with us uh, in the last few weeks, we've been doing a, a sermon series out of Paul's letter to Corinthians called Has God Left the Building? Godly Wisdom in a World that Knows Better. And we're basically walking through that letter that Paul wrote. He wrote two letters to the Corinthians. They had a lot of issues. There was a, a strong relationship with that group of people there in Corinth. And uh, it wasn't just Paul writing the letter. They were writing him letters as well and asking him questions and letting him know, letting him know how things were going. Um, a lot of y'all have heard me say over the last few weeks that Paul spent a year and a half of his life with this group in Corinth, getting to know them, teaching them what Jesus said, his commandments, and what it means to be uh, a, a follower of Jesus. And when he explains what it means to be a follower of Jesus, he means that that... At, that impacts every aspect of your life, not just something when you come to worship, but every aspect of your life. And Jesus, we slowly, as we become a follower of Jesus, we surrender every part of our life to Jesus. And some of those parts are harder than others. So if you were with us last week, I got to preach a, a, a fairly awkward sermon <laughs> on uh, talking about... Uh, his response to sexual immorality in that first century, and I think it's very applicable today, and we're dealing with a lot of the same things in our nation and in our community that Paul was and the Corinthians were in that first century with as far as sexual immorality and how we view sex, how we view marriage and sexuality, and the culture says one thing and God's word says something very different, and we have to look at that and say, if I'm going to be a Jesus follower, then I have to look through the lens of God's word. And how am I supposed to view it? Through culture? Or am I supposed to view it through God's view? Because he is the creator. And that's where we kind of landed. So I want to give just a, a brief uh, uh, little bit of a review of last week. But some of the folks obviously in this church, in this culture, in Corinth, were basically engaging in sexual immorality. Some of them were calling themselves Christians. And you remember Paul earlier in his letter said, hey... I'm not judging people outside of the church, but those certainly within the church, we have to call them into account. And he says they were engaging, and some were being tempted to do so, and they were saying, we have the right to do that because we are free in Christ. And Paul had to set them straight on this. He goes, let me tell you something. You, 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 yeah, you have the right to do anything, as he said last week. You, we have the right to do anything we want. And Paul says, yeah, you do have the right to do anything you want, but not everything that you're free to do is going to be beneficial in your life. And not everything that you are free to do in your life is going to be without consequence because there's consequences for everything. So then Paul laid this strong argument for God's design and God's intent for sexual relations. And we are, when we're committed, he says, to being a follower of Jesus, we're one with him in spirit. He keeps emphasizing that. And our bodies are members, he said, of Christ himself. So... They're not to be united with anybody and everybody. And he specifically mentions a prostitute because this is what was going on in this culture. There were a lot of um, pagan temples and there was uh, prostitution going on within part of the worship service. And he says, we're not supposed to be a part of that. And he says, we're supposed to be in a covenant, committed relationship with God and our spouse. That's how God designed marriage to be. And that's what he created and intended it to be. So then he went on to say, we need to flee from sexual immorality, all forms of it. And he reminds us that our bodies are temples 
where the Holy Spirit resides in us. Christ, the Holy Spirit, actually resides in us. And again, that's a huge responsibility when you think about it. And then Paul drove home these points by emphasizing that regardless of what culture says, regardless of what you see other people practicing around you and saying is the philosophy and the things we're supposed to do, we are not our own. People can have that attitude and say, hey, I'm my own person. It's all about me. I make my own decisions. I have the right to do, as I said last week, anything and everything I want to do, anytime I want with anybody I want. But that's not always true. Yeah, you have that freedom, and God gives you that uh, free will to do that, but there are consequences. And then he reminds us that we are not our own. We were bought at a price. And because of that, if you're truly a Christ follower and you embrace that and recognize you were bought with Christ's precious blood on the cross, then that says something in the way that you live. And now you honor God with your bodies. Not look at it as it's something that I can do with whatever I want, however I want. And so he's trying to change that mindset. So I think it's important for us to remember that Paul was not just trying to condemn the Corinthian culture. He's not just trying to point out all the bad things that are going on in Corinth. He's addressing things that they've come to him and say, you're an apostle of God, you're an apostle of Jesus Christ, and God's called you to go help us with these things. There's this tension, just like in our culture. I've told y'all, y'all have these conversations about cultural issues with your coworkers, don't you? You have these um, conversations with your kids, with your grandkids, with your great-grandkids, and you can tell the tension. I was talking to a, a, a grandfather this week specifically. He hasn't been able to come in several weeks, and we were talking about these things, and he's going, man, it is difficult. I'm talking to my grandsons about these sexual issues. He got to watch the, uh, the video of, of, of the sermon series. He says it is difficult. They're hearing all these things in the culture, and I'm telling them what God's word is, and there's this tension. And I'm trying to say, I love you, but I can't agree with how you're thinking about this gift of sexuality. And as I said last week, our personal sexuality is something that's so personal. It's so private, and many times we want to act like there's certain parts of our life that God doesn't really need to have a part of in my life. That that's off limits for God, but we find that as we become a follower of Christ, we have to learn to surrender every aspect of our lives. And some are harder than others, aren't they? It's difficult for us to do that. But today I think we'll see clearly that Paul is absolutely not against sex, not against sexuality, and not against marriage. But he's saying no, but within the marital covenant that God created. And so this section begins with a statement that many believe was actually a statement that the Corinthians had sent to him in a letter, and they're asking him, Paul, this is what some people are saying in our culture. What do you think about this? So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And there it is up on the screen, thank you. And you can read along in your Bibles. But this is what Paul says. So here's this question we believe they ask him, probably maybe in a letter. Now for the matters you wrote about... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's in quotes. Okay, They're asking him this. This is something that's being said in the culture by somebody. But he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have the authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so Paul is laying out another. He's saying, I'm addressing something that you wrote to me about. So we think this quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or in probably some of your versions, it says, it is good for a man not to marry. So he's going from one end of the spectrum where these people were saying anything goes in our sexuality to another end of the spectrum where people say you should just not get married, you should not have sex, you should go uh, be celibate and in kind of a life of, of an ascetic type living. That's where you should go. Either, either you know, not that or this. And Paul's going, wait a minute. You're going to the other end of the spectrum. So some people were saying, you should just not have sex at all. You should not even be married. Don't even do that. And he's like, no, y'all are missing the point. This is a gift from God. I'm not against it. I'm against using it in a way that God never intended. So last week we addressed where Paul talked about, like I said, the extreme to being sexually immoral. And in this section, Paul's dealing with a culture who may be at the other end of that. Uh, and, and you should be celibate and not indulge in that at all. But Paul is answering a question, again, that they've specifically asked him in a letter, and he's trying to address it. Now, notice what he does. He says, look, um, you have this sexual uh, desire that God has given you, and your culture is telling you to indulge in it whenever and however you want. And he's saying, wait a minute, let's, let's look at that. He says, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. I want you to notice that he addresses both of these. This is a very male-dominated society and culture. And Paul is saying, no, each man should have his own wife to deal with this desire that God has given, a God-given desire. And each, um, each woman should have her own husband. That's how God designed it. And do this God's way by his design, not the culture's way. And then he said, the husband should fulfill his marital duty as should the wife. Now... That doesn't sound very romantic, does it? Fulfill your duty. <laughs> that just does not sound very romantic. I'm glad somebody laughed because I thought that was funny too, you know? It is funny when you think about it. It's not a duty. It sounds uh, not romantic at all. This is a duty we're supposed to fulfill. That, that's not what I want in my marriage. I'm sure hopefully you're not what you want in your marriage. But even if we don't like Paul's choice of word, I went to the Greek word and I go, surely there's a better word than duty, Paul. But it basically points to something that is owed to someone, but it doesn't have to be in a negative sense. I want to owe this to my wife. I want to owe this to my husband because this is part of our relationship. We love each other. I want to think about it in this way. Have you ever had somebody get you out of a jam or do something for you that was just, you know, over the top nice and helping you and you went, man, I'm so thankful that you helped me out with this. So thank you so much for doing this. I owe you one. Have you ever said that to somebody? Meaning, I look forward to the opportunity when you have a situation where you need my help. I look forward to being able to do that for you because of what you did for me. And Paul's saying part of our duty is being able to satisfy and be with our, our, our partner like that. And we want to be able to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. 
he's saying. He said it's not something. He said, but it is your duty to do that. That's part of why you got married, to take those passions and those desires that God gave you and use those for one another. And in marriage, there are things we vow to do at our wedding. Do you remember those wedding vows that you said? And I get every time I do a wedding, I get reminded of my own wedding vows. I'm like, wow, I promised that to my wife. These are vows that I'm making. And we vow to be committed to doing those things out of a deep sense because I love you and I care about you. Now, sometimes when we're making those vows, we're all starry-eyed and it's going to be all wonderful and beautiful and nothing's ever going to go wrong, right? <laughs> and then we get into the real deal, you know, and there's other things. And what he's saying is if we vow and we're making a commitment to this because you know what? There's going to be some days we wake up and we look at that person and go, I don't feel like doing that for them today. I don't feel like being nice today. I don't even want to talk to you today. You ever had those feelings? That's the reality of marriage. But we made a commitment and say, I'm going to do that anyway. And so Paul goes further to say to married folks and those who are considering marriage something that's very significant here. And he says the wife does not have authority over her own body and it does not belong to her alone but also to her husband and she yields that to him. Now that goes against our culture, doesn't it? Well, this is my body. I will do what I want. Ain't no man going to tell me what I can do with my body. We understand that whole thing. But Paul is saying, wait a minute, when you become one, remember we talked about that from the very beginning. He said marriage is when two become one. When you are one, you don't have authority over your own body and it doesn't belong to you, but you yield that to your husband. That's what you're giving it, that you're offering. Now, Paul does not stop here, and I think this is really significant, and this is, this is very significant in this culture that he goes over to the other side. He didn't have to say anything about the man yielding his body to the wife because this was counterculture. And when people hear him say this, they're going, what? I understand about the woman's supposed to yield her body to me, but I ain't supposed to yield. No. Paul says when you are in Christ, you are a new creation and everything changes. Your marriage is now God's marriage, not yours. And so he says the same thing. He says you also, the husband, is also supposed to say, hey, your body is not your own. You don't have control. You give that. You yield that to your wife. And this is significant in this culture. And it's not just Paul saying this. This is the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write this about God's purpose and design for marriage. So the, the husband, he says, you don't have authority over your own body. You does not belong to you. You yield it to your wife as well. And this is huge in this male-dominated culture. But again, this is God's design. The two will become one, and this is how it is. And Paul is consistent in this teaching. When you read his other letters, specifically I think about Ephesians, both the wife and husband have specific things that they're supposed to do in this marital relationship. And Paul understands this, that men and women are wired very differently. He understands that. I think about Ephesians when he says, women, you're supposed to respect your husbands, and husbands, you're supposed to love your wives. Those are two different things, but that's the way we're wired. Men are more keyed in on respect, and women are more keyed in on love. So Paul is very consistent in saying, I understand God has made us different, but this is his creation, so we need to listen to him. And then Paul goes on to say this, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time to devote to prayer. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, maybe with a saw, but I'm going to say, over the years of people depriving each other, and y'all know what I'm talking about, 
I don't bet there were many times where you said, honey, you know, you've heard, oh, honey, I can't tonight, I got a headache. We've heard, all heard that, right? But has anybody said, not tonight, honey, because I'm praying to God, okay? Most of the time, we deprive our partner because we're resentful of them. We are angry with them. We are upset with them, and this is a way to get back at them. Now, nobody needs to nod your head, but inside we're going, yeah, I've been there. I've been. And it goes both ways. And he's saying that is not what you're supposed to do. Paul understands this. This culture was no different than ours. Sometimes we uh, use it to get attention of our mate. We use it to punish our mate or to manipulate our mate. And Paul said that's not right. The only reason you shouldn't do that is because if you've decided together to say we're not going to do that for a while because we're concentrating on prayer about a certain subject or maybe fasting or maybe meditating on something that we've agreed to do. And he says, only for a while and then come back together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's saying God understand these, understands your desires because he gave them to you. Paul is not unaware of these. He has these desires. But he's saying this is God's design. So Paul's being very practical here and recognize the reality of what goes on into marriages. Now, again, I hope you're hearing this not only for your own marriage, but for a way to point young people, whether it's your grandkids or a friend, to God's word on these things. Because these things are going to come up in marriage, aren't they? They always are going to do. And I know that you're going to be in a place where your kids are going to bounce this stuff off of you. Your grandkids are going to bounce this stuff off of you. And you need to be able to point them to God's word and what it says. Now, how many marriages have ended in some type of, a, of, of affair because of anger, revenge, or pride, or whatever, because the husband or the wife decided that their body was theirs alone and they're not going to yield it to their, their spouse because of anger or resentment or whatever? Or one or both of them aren't being fulfilled. And so they get tempted because they're not getting their needs met. And because you're not meeting my needs and you're my wife or you're my husband and you're not meeting those needs, well, you know what? I have these desires. And then we fall for Satan's lie that I can get my desires met outside of my spouse better. And we believe that will happen. So we go looking for somebody else. And let me just say this. When you get tempted and to get your needs needs met outside of God's design for marriage. You can find that, but there's consequences for that. And let me just say this. Getting your needs met outside is not necessarily a physical affair. It can also be pornography. And y'all know what a billion, with a B, billion dollar industry pornography is. And people who are not in a right kind of marital relationship are turning to that. And that's just as bad as having a relationship with someone else can be just as devastating. And when this happens, a marriage and a relationship can be ended or it takes a huge hit and it brings hurt and betrayal. And, and Paul's saying, man, this precious gift that God's given you, I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want that to happen to your kids. I don't want that to happen to your grandkids. So you need to know the truth about this. So Paul says here, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And what I think he's talking about here is this specifically. I believe he means here that he's not commanding that married couples, this is not a command that you abstain in order to pray or fast or something, but as a concession or allowance, only if both of you agree on this. But you don't have to stop. You can agree to pray about something and fast and all that and still continue you know, doing whatever you want to do. But he's saying, I'm just saying this not as a command, but as a concession. And then in verse 7, Paul says this. He wishes all were as he was. Well, what is he saying? 
that I'm super spiritual, that I understand God's word better than all of y'all? No, that's not what he's saying. He's probably meaning, I wish you were probably single and celibate like I am. I think that's what he's saying. And, and he will refer back in detail in this same chapter, in this letter, about why he says that. Basically saying that when you're married, you have other things you have to take care of. But now that I'm single and I'm celibate and I'm laser being focused on what God's called me to do as his apostle, I have the time to really focus on that. But when you're married, it's harder because you have this relationship and, and all the things that come with it, which are good things, but they can take you away. So I think he's saying that. Now, we don't know if Paul was married and divorced. We don't know if Paul was married. Some people, a lot of people think that his wife possibly died. We don't know, but Paul was obviously not married, and um, we just don't know that for sure. But he considers this a gift, and he reminds us that all of us are gifted, but gifted in very different ways. And he says, I'm gifted to be able to be celibate and single and do God's work, and I, and I, I'm, I believe God's gifted me to do that, but that's not for everybody. And it's not wrong if you're not. He's not saying you have to do this. He's just saying that's where I am in this area of my life. I wanted to share something from a, a book written by a guy named Ray Ortland. He wrote a book called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. And in an excerpt from that, he says this. He said, the key to understanding the sexual wisdom of the Bible is to combine both form and freedom, both structure and liberation. Conservative people love form and restraint and control. Progressive people love freedom and openness and choices. Both see part of the truth, but wisdom sees more. Wisdom teaches us that God gave us our sexuality both to focus our romantic joy and to unleash our romantic joy. When our desires are both focused and unleashed, both form and freedom, our sexual experience becomes wonderfully intensified. A marriage can flourish within both form and freedom because sex is like a fire. Listen to this. I think it's a good illustration. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. And he said, here's the message of the Bible. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. Interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? But I like that. When we do it the way God's asked us to, it can warm us. There's a lot of great things for fire, but when we don't use it in the proper way, it can burn the house down. Now to bring, this, uh, to bring God's practical teaching even further in reminding us that God has not left the building and that we don't know better, better even in the 21st century, I think a lot of people, and this is what I know a lot of y'all, and I'll, I know I see some young people, and I want y'all to listen carefully to this, and the rest of you who are parents and grandparents, you're dealing with this with some of your kids and your grandkids. In our culture, oh, we're so enlightened, we're so smart, we understand marriage and we understand all that, but we think it's smarter to live with someone ahead of time before we get married. Because when we do that, we will be so much more enlightened. And let, let me tell you, I've counseled with many young people who say this, and I'm going, oh, here we go again. You're going to tell me this, and this is what they say basically. We're going to live together first. We really think we, because we've got so much wisdom, this will prepare us for marriage and give us better insight on how it's going to be to live with each other. So we're going to do that before we decide to get married. We're going to go ahead and live together. And, and some of y'all are dealing with this with your own kids and grandkids. I know, and you're like, oh, I love you, but that's not right. That's not what God has for you. It sounds sophisticated. It sounds open-minded. It sounds so liberating, but here's the deal. You're not the first that's believed that. Paul dealt with the same people thinking, oh, we're just going to live together. It's going to be fine. 
And, and, and some have been able to, to make that happen. They've lived together and they've gotten married. But you know what? When I ask people, I say, let me just ask you this. If you had a son or a daughter right now and they told you they were going to live with their mate before they got married, what would you tell them? Every single time the people that are telling me they're getting ready to live together said, no, I wouldn't want my son or daughter to do it. I go, then why are you doing it? You're saying you think that's the best thing, but yet you know better. And here's what the statistics show, that people who cohabitate before getting married, the divorce rate is higher. You know how much higher? 33% higher. And these aren't Christians doing these, these, these statistics. They're just, you know, psychologists. People say, hey, we're just curious. Does it help? I want to I close today just with another interesting um, uh, illustration, if I could. But even when you do get married, this is what's interesting about this living together thing. What we're doing is, is, and people come to me sometimes that have been living together and want me to do their wedding. And I said, you know this seems a little um, not exactly uh, with integrity. And what do you mean? I said, because what you've said is, God, I want you to come and be a part of my special day of Mary, of my marriage day, my wedding day. I want you to be a part of that. But before all that, I told you I don't need you. You see how that sounds to God? But here's the good news of the gospel. God is good. He takes us where we are, and he lets us make these mistakes. And when we repent and surrender and come to him and say, God, I want to start doing it your way now, he takes us right there and helps us get from where we are to where he wants us to be in the first place. But listen to this interesting study. Uh, a lady named Stephanie Pappas wrote this article, Marry or Move In Together, Brain Knows the Difference. And this is the study that was done. Y'all know what MRIs are, right? And MRI basically stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. So they sought to examine the brain functioning of cohabitating and married women when they face stress. So researchers administered to both sets of women in this, this research um, with a mild electronic shock to the ankle. And so for, for support, the women had three choices, to hold the hand of their partners, hold the hand of the stranger, or hold or just face the shock all by yourself. When a married woman held the hand of her spouse, she registered a deep sense of calm in the hypothalamus region of her brain as she prepared for the shock. Conversely, cohabitating women holding the hand of the live-in partner registered with little to no calm. What surprised researchers is that while the both sets of women stated they felt committed to their partners, whether they were married or not, the cohabitating women recorded the same level of calm as those holding the hands of a stranger. Researchers speculate that while cohabitating women say they feel commitment from the partner, doubt resides in the deepest part of their brains. Is that not fascinating? Now, this is research. This is science that God developed, and he's saying, these aren't Christian people. They're just saying, we want to see what happens, and they're making these. So God calls us as his creation to trust him with not only our bodies, but with his creation of marriage. It doesn't mean marriage is easy and without issue. You're still going to have them, even if you're doing it God's way. But when the two become one, as God intended, we understand God better, we understand each other better, and we're committed to his way instead of the culture's way. So today we just want to offer an invitation. Maybe there's something today that I hope has encouraged you to share this good news, I think it is, from Corinthians with maybe your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids or, or some friends of your, of your friends.
that need to hear this. But also, maybe you need to surrender to God's way today in your marriage. Maybe there's something you're doing that you maybe need to change and ask God to help you with. And I hope you'll do that today. But also, we want to offer an invitation that we do have a God, like I just said, that takes us right where we are and says, I know what you're doing, and I know you're outside of my will, but I want you to be inside of my will. So I offer you this invitation. And I don't just offer you an invitation. I gave my life so that you could be forgiven and restored and back in relationship with me like it's always intended. So maybe there's somebody here today that wants to do that, and we want to offer that invitation this morning. If there's somebody that needs to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and repent where you are of whatever it is and say, hey, I want to start living, I want to start surrendering to God, we want to offer that invitation. Or you're looking for a church home where we say we're not perfect, but you know what? We are going to always turn to God's Word. Always turn to God's Word and see what He is telling us for our life. Not culture, but God's Word. And if you're interested in joining a church like that, then we offer that invitation as well. So James is going to come and lead us in invitation. And if you have a decision, we ask you to come forward.